0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. We do have sermon notes in the back as uh, next to our bulletin if you'd like to pick up those if you haven't done so. We also have... Um, PowerPoint slides that we'll have on the screen, but those are also available through our Google Drive um, folder that you can access through the bulletin as well, so I encourage you to reference those today or in the future. Um, We always try to put those there each week uh, for those that might need access to it on days that they're not here. So uh, Over the past month or so, we had been talking about the seven seals Uh, found in the book of Revelation. So just to back up a little bit for those that are visiting with us this morning, those that haven't been here um, over the past month or so, uh, we were talking about this great scroll in heaven that John sees in his vision in Revelation. The scroll basically um, contains the the plans of God, the, the culmination of history, the direction, the plans that God has for Uh, Humanity. And so this scroll is in heaven and, and it's sealed with seven seals, and there's no way to open it. No one is found worthy to open the seal. And there's this great search that ensues in heaven, and no one's found worthy enough to open it. I mean, it leaves John the Apostle, who's writing the book of Revelation to us, crying because he realizes that unless someone can open this scroll, unless somebody can break these seals, then God's plans will not be accomplished. And it's at that point, at that moment, that the Lamb of God, Jesus, is found to be worthy to do this. And so Jesus begins to break these seals, and it begins to unleash God's plans upon the earth. And so when he breaks the first, second, third, and fourth, we begin to see the four horsemen that come riding upon the earth, and they bring devastation with them. We saw the opening of the fifth seal and the martyrs that are before uh, the throne, and they're, um, they're crying out to God for vindication for the, just, the injustice that's been done to them. We see the silence in heaven. We see the worship in heaven that ensues as we get closer and closer to that seventh seal being broken. And with the opening of the seventh seal, we see that silence in heaven in Revelation 8, And then we see the preparation for the trumpets to be blown. And so what we think is the the end of history with that sixth seal being broken, it simply backs us back up once again as we begin to see these trumpets being blown. And we're going to see how I believe that it's just a recycling of some of the things that we've already talked about with these trumpets being blown. But there's an intensification that we see um, as well as these trumpets are blown. So seven takeaways from the seven seals that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. We should long for these things to happen because it reflects God's plans being carried out. Jesus alone is worthy of the worship of all creation because he alone is worthy to carry out God's plans. God controls and limits all of the evil that's to come. We see God not allowing things to happen unless he wants them to happen, unless it's part of his plan. And so even the evil that comes on the scene in the book of Revelation, it only receives its authority from God. Um, we see God showing great value to the church and how he cares for the church, takes care of the church, uh, provides for the church. We see missions being a priority. Uh, we see that great scene where people from every tribe, nation, and tongue are worshiping Jesus. And uh, what a great reminder to us that the, the, the church that God has saved is a church that is made up of people from every background possible, every skin color possible, makes up uh, the church the effects of sin are gonna be removed. We highlighted the fact that when Jesus returns, all of that is done away with. And we highlighted most recently that the end will come in response to prayer. What we see here in Revelation chapter eight is that the saints pray for the end to come and God responds by bringing the end. And so it's a good reminder to us that God includes us in his plans. God includes us in his purposes. He, he finds glory, he finds delight in in carrying out his plans by responding to the prayers of the saints. And so we highlighted that most recently. And so that brings us now to Revelation chapter 8, verse 6, the blowing of the seven trumpets. It says, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise, a third of the night. We see God bringing devastation upon the earth. We see him doing so in response to the prayers of the saints. And so that brings us to our summary sentence for today. Christians can be encouraged by both the current and future destruction of the earth by seeing it as a sign of the outworking of God's sovereign purposes to defend his people and to warn his enemies. Christians can be encouraged by the current and future destruction of the earth by seeing it as a sign of the outworking of God's sovereign purposes to defend his people and to warn his enemies. God is answering the prayers of the saints here. You know, back up to the seals, uh, seal five opens and the saints are before the throne that have been killed for their faith and they're crying out to God, how long, O oh Lord, how long until you do something about your people being hurt by rebellious sinners who do not worship you? How long until you deal with this? How long until you deal with this? Daniel's probably closer to that type of mindset than a lot of us being in the occupation that he's at going through the trials that he goes through, seeing the evil here in Coweta County, how long until God deals with that, right? Daniel works in a job that one day will not be, right? When Jesus comes back, there will no longer be a need for guys like Daniel working in the system to make sure that we're protected from evil. There won't be evil to deal with anymore. How long until God deals with that? God responds to those prayers, And the response is to blow these trumpets and to bring this devastation upon the earth on those who are causing harm to his people. And so we can be encouraged both by current things that are happening on this earth and if we are permitted to live long enough to see some of these things intensify as we watch news reports of possible destruction that were to come upon this earth, we can be encouraged and know and this is, God's, this is God's response to his enemies. This is God's protection for his people. This is God coming and defending those who love him. But even in the midst of God bringing destruction, it still serves as simply a warning and not a final judgment. We're gonna see as we unpack this, it's not coming on the whole earth. It's, it's spread out. Only a third of the earth is affected by this. So it's mass destruction, It's mass judgment, but only a third of the earth endures it. Why? Because this is a trumpet, and oftentimes trumpets are used to warn of coming judgment, to warn of coming judgment. And so there's a delay. There's a delay from the final judgment. God continues to give his enemies the opportunity to repent. So we can be encouraged. No matter what we see today on the news, no matter what we see moving forward, and if we live long enough to see this future destruction come, We can see it as a sign of God working his sovereign purposes to defend his people, to warn his enemies. For our kids, God allows bad things to happen to non-Christians in order to warn them of his coming judgment. This is God's grace and mercy. You don't read this and think, what a great God. What a kind God. What a merciful God. We read this and we're like, wow, what a scary scene. Blood and fire and hail coming down from heaven. Big mountain, big burning mountain, maybe like a meteor splashing into the ocean and wreaking havoc. You think, wow, God is an angry God. God is a wrathful God. God is a judgmental God. And what really screams from these pages is, man, God is a merciful God. He he could have brought this destruction to the entire earth. He only brings it to a third of the earth. Two thirds of the earth does not perish in this, giving them opportunity to repent. He's a good God. He's a kind God. He's a gracious God. We certainly see that echoing from these pages in Revelation chapter 8. Some introductory notes just to kind of get us started, and then we'll jump right into our outline this morning. Um, there's a real similar structure here to the breaking of the seals, a lot of similarities. There were seven seals, there's going to be seven trumpets. There's four quick ones that we're going to talk about, just like we did with the four horsemen. We're going to talk about four of them this morning, because they happen real quick. They're, um, there's not a lot of details given about them, just like with the four horsemen. But then we're going to have two longer spiritual ones, like we saw with the seals. The, the, the ones that are under the altar crying out to God, the, the coming of Jesus in his glory to bring judgment on the earth. We're going to see two longer trumpet blows that we'll talk about, and we're going to see them broken up with that parentheses, that transitional uh, phrase that takes place just like they did with the seals. So there's a lot of similarities in the structure. What we do find with the trumpets is there is greater suffering with the trumpets. In the seals, we talked about one-fourth of the earth being affected, Now we see one third of the earth being affected. And so there's some intensity here that we didn't see with the seals that is increasing. Uh, What we're gonna also find is that the trumpet judgments are more for unbelievers while the seals were used to test and strengthen believers. This is God's response to unbelievers, these trumpet judgments. And we're gonna see that as we unpack them. We're gonna see how God's people are spared, particularly from the later trumpets. Um, As we read this, we're going to draw some allusions to Old Testament stories that can be seen here. Uh, The two allusions, the two stories that are are being referenced, I think, here in the trumpet judgments. One, the the judgment of Jericho with the trumpets, right? Think back with me in the Old Testament. Israel is about to invade the promised land. They come to the city of Jericho, this great city that's fortified by these great walls. God commands them to march around the, the, the city, right? To blow trumpets. And on that final day, they walk around seven times, they blow seven trumpets, and the walls come tumbling down. There, there's an important reference here with the trumpets being a warning. There's a week of warning for the Jericho people, right? Rahab buys into that warning, right? Rahab cries out to God, and Rahab's people, Rahab's family, is saved in the midst of this destruction. We see a good God, a kind God, a gracious God in the Old Testament blowing seven trumpets of warning, and then destruction comes, right? Right? We're also going to see some allusion to the plagues in Egypt. Remember, before they get to Jericho, they're in Egypt in bondage and in slavery. And Egypt is a place full of idolatry. It's a place full of persecution towards God's people. And God brings judgment upon that land with 10 horrific plagues that devastate their land. And we're going to see some similarities in the type of things that God did to Egypt and what he will do on the third of the earth in the future. So some allusions to those stories. Um, particularly in the uh, Jericho story, the seven trumpets being blown by the priestly figures. We see these angels functioning like priests in Revelation chapter eight. They will blow the trumpets in this context. In Joshua chapter six, the Ark of the Covenant is present when they invade Jericho. And when they blow these trumpets, fast forward a little bit in Revelation chapter 11, when we start to come to the end of the trumpet blows, the seventh trumpet is found in Revelation 11, and in verse 19 it says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. ark of the covenant is present just like it was at Jericho. Um, there was silence before the blowing. Remember we see the silence in Revelation chapter 8? If you jump back to Joshua chapter 6, before they proceed with their plan to knock down the walls of Jericho... There's a strategic silence there as well. Joshua chapter six, verse 10. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. A lot of similarities between what took place at Jericho and what takes place with these trumpets blowing in Revelation chapter eight. Again, I share that background information with you because I never want you to believe that Revelation is some weird book that's unlike any other book in scripture. It's written differently, but it is drawing upon some consistent principles that have been in existence since the beginning of time in the Old Testament. God remains consistent. God continues to do things the same way throughout history. We'll continue to see that as we unpack this. All right, let's get into point number one. God is responsive in his judgment. God is responsive in his judgment. For our kids, God judges because of man's sin and Christian prayers. God judges because of man's sin and Christian prayers. He's responding to things. God's judgment in Revelation chapter 8, these trumpets being blown and the destruction that comes upon the earth, it is in response to certain things. It's in response to man's sin. It's in response to Christians crying out for God's justice. God is responsive in his judgment. This isn't simply God reaching a point of exhaustion with man's uh, actions. This is God responding to man's prayers for his justice. This is God responding to man's rebellious actions. God is responsive in his judgment. First of all, God judges as an answer to Christian prayers. He judges as an answer to Christian prayers. Trumpets are in response to Christians' prayers for God's justice and deliverance. In my notes I put, prayer is an act of finite, sinful humans that in some amazing and mysterious way moves into action a sovereign and omnipotent God. I don't know why God chooses to include us in plans like this. He certainly doesn't need to. He certainly doesn't have to. And yet God chooses to use finite, created things he uses us to move him into action right he finds glory in responding to the cries of his people and so he sets the stage to where he wants to judge man's sin but he doesn't do it by himself he does it in response to the people that he has he has saved crying out for their for god's help and so he responds by doing exactly what he wants to do but he receives increased glory because he's doing it in response to people crying out for his help God responds, he judges as an answer to Christian prayers. He responds to the saints' prayer by using angels to execute judgments on the persecuting world leading up to the final judgment. What an encouragement to know that our prayers are answered. When we pray prayers that align with God's heart and his will, we can trust that they will be answered. We can trust that God will deliver us. And as this stuff intensifies, as we continue to see the church under persecution, and while that continues to be on the far side of the world, where many of our brothers and sisters that endure persecution live, right? It hasn't found its way here. It most likely will. And as we see persecution intensify, our prayers will probably intensify as well for God to come and bring justice, right? We can have periods of. Um, focus where we really focus on the persecuted church and we cry out and pray for their deliverance and we pray for God to come and bring justice. But then we're all too quick to forget those that are dying for their faith, right? And so as, as the persecution intensifies potentially even in our country, our prayers will certainly intensify as well. And at that time, we will fully be able to trust that God will answer and respond to those prayers. We see that laid out for us in Revelation chapter 8. The angel casts down fire in response to the prayers, and that fire comes in the form of these seven trumpets. God judges as an answer to Christian prayers, but secondly, God judges as an answer to man's sin. Judgment falls because of the persecution of God's people and because of idolatry. There are specific reasons for why God brings this judgment. First of all, we know again, Revelation chapter 6, God's people crying out, How long, O Lord, until you judge the persecution? How many Christians have to die until you do something about it? What's God's response? Some more. God says, Some more are going to have to die, but know that I will step in and stop it. It's not at the point yet where I'm going to, but I will step in and stop it. So he judges in response to the persecution. But also in Revelation chapter 9, verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. God responds and judges their sin, their idolatry, their worshiping of false gods, God steps in and says, we're not going to have this anymore. We're not going to have the persecution anymore, and we're not going to have the idolatry anymore. And God brings judgment upon those things. God is responsive in his judgment. He's responding to Christian prayers. He's responding to man's sin. But number two, God is consistent in his judgment. God is consistent in his judgment. For our kids, God always judges for the same reasons. And here's where I want to remind you again that Revelation is a consistent way of seeing how God functions by looking to the Old Testament. He's consistent in his judgment. Revelation is not something new. It's not something completely drastically different than how God normally functions. Look to the Old Testament and we can see, wow, this is how God's always been working. This is how God has always responded to man's rebellion. All right? So we see, first of all, God is consistent in why he judges. He's consistent in why he judges. God's judgment of Egypt was in response to their idolatry and their persecution of God's people. All right, so we're gonna see, if you haven't already seen just by simply reading, we're gonna see as we get into the trumpets here in just a minute, that there's a lot of similarities with the plagues, right? There was a plague of hail. We see hail coming down. There was a plague of darkness. We see darkness coming down. There was a plague towards the water as the Nile River was made uh, undrinkable. We see, we see the judgment of the trumpet where, where the water is not drinkable, right? So there's some parallels in how God brought plagues upon Egypt and how God brings plagues upon the whole earth in the future, right? And there's parallels in why he does that. Think back to Egypt. The cries of God's people, we referenced this uh, several weeks back. The cries of God's people at the beginning of the book of Exodus, the cries of God's people reach him. We are in persecution. We are in slavery. Help us, save us and God responds and sends Moses, right? But it's not just that they're persecuting God's people. They're idolatrous, right? You've probably heard before that all of the plagues of Egypt are an attack against their gods that they worship, right? They worship the god of the Nile River. The Nile River turns blood. Cry out to the god of the Nile River to fix that. He can't, right? They worship gods that are represented in all these plagues. And they they can't stop the plagues. All they can do is replicate the plagues. In um, Exodus chapter seven verse five, we see why God is bringing these plagues. Is to make His name great. Exodus chapter seven verse five. God's speaking, and He says, "The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out My hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them." God's interested in making himself known. In Exodus chapter nine, verse 16. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God says, I want people to be talking about what happened in Egypt for years to come so that my name is proclaimed all over the earth. I want my name to be made great. In Exodus chapter 10, Verse one and two, it says, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show these signs of mine among them and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. God brings judgment on Egypt because they're persecuting his people and because they're worshiping false gods. It's exactly the same reason he brings judgment in Revelation because there will be people on this earth persecuting the church and there will be people on this earth worshiping false gods and that warrants God's judgment. He's consistent in why he judges, but number two, he's consistent in how he judges. He's consistent in how he judges. You, You read this and again, you're thinking, what a terrifying scene when these trumpets are blown and this destruction comes upon the earth, but it's real consistent with what's already occurred in the Old Testament things that God has previously warned about and things that God has previously done. God's judgment has always tasted bitter, right? We see here in uh, Revelation chapter eight, the reference to the water becoming like wormwood, which is a bitter root. It's not poisonous. So there's something else going on there that God adds the poison to it because um, it says the third of the waters became wormwood. Many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Some poisonous aspect is added to it. But God has always talked about his judgment tasting bitter. It's consistent with what we find in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 13, God is bringing judgment upon his people because they've been unfaithful to him. It says, and the Lord says, Because they have forsaken my law that I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts, and have gone after the Baals, as their father taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food, and give them poisonous water to drink. It's consistent. This is how God judges his people. When his people are not faithful to him, he judges them in the Old Testament. When people on this earth are not faithful to him, they're rebellious towards him, they worship false gods, God judges them with bitter food and drink. It's the same picture in the Old Testament. God's consistent in how he judges. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 15, we see the same idea. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 15. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. His judgment is always compared to bitterness. God also judges with hail a lot of times. In Joshua chapter 10, so we see God raining down upon the earth, hail and fire mingled with blood. But in Joshua chapter 10 verse 11 he used hail as well to bring judgment. It says as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw large stones down from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. <coughs> God brought judgment upon the Canaanite people, and He did it through hail at times. The same type of hail He will use in the future. In Revelation, He's used in the past in the old testament in fact job when he's when god's talking with job job chapter 38 listen to what he says verse 22 god says to job have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail which i have reserved for the time of trouble for the day of battle and war god says i have storehouses of hail that I plan to use for judgment in the future. He says it's in the Old Testament. Revelation is not something new. It's a consistent principle for how God responds to sin. He responds with bitterness. He responds with hail. He responds with cosmic upheaval. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 11. We read here in the trumpets that the sun, the moon, and the stars are going to be darkened. We'll experience a taste of that tomorrow in the in the eclipse. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than gold of offer. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble. The earth will shake out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Back up to verse 10, it says, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. God bringing warning about judgment in the book of Isaiah. Jump ahead to the book of Joel. Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. "'Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. "'Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, "'for the day of the Lord is coming. "'It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, "'a day of clouds and thick darkness. "'Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. "'A great and powerful people, "'their like has never been before, "'nor will be again after them "'through the years of all generations.'" fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses they run as with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish all great, all faces grow pale like warriors they charge like soldiers they scale the wall they march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. The earth quakes before them, verse 10. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? God's using the same language in the Old Testament before he brings judgment on people in the Old Testament. Same language. It's the same language we find in the book of Revelation. So I don't think we have to go into speculative mode here and try to figure out when do these things happen? What does it look like when they do happen? It may not happen in this language that's being used. Intensified language is being used to draw our attention to the need to repent and to prepare for God's coming. It's the same language used in the Old Testament prior to God bringing judgment upon sinful people there. In Amos chapter 8, Verse 9. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor of thirst of water, but of hearing the words. Of the Lord, God promising judgment using similar language. We won't reference it, but Zephaniah 1 14 through 18 carries the same type of language as well. And again, these are people groups that have already been judged by God well in the past. And God used the same language to talk about the judgment that would come upon them. He's consistent in his judgment, he's consistent in why he judges. He's always judged those that persecute his people and that worship false gods. And he's always done it in similar ways. Bitterness, hail, fire, judgment. Okay, God brings that. But number three, God is sovereign in his judgment. He's responsive. He responds to judge, he responds to the Christian prayers and demands sin with judgment. He does it consistently. Why he judges, how he judges, and then we see his sovereignty in his judgment. All of these things in Revelation chapter 8, all of this is part of creation, and we see God's sovereign control over creation how he uses creation for his purposes. So let's come back to Revelation chapter eight. It says, the first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were drawn upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the grass was burned up. For our kids, God uses his creation to bring judgment. First of all, the first trumpet, God strikes the land. God strikes the land. He deals with their food supply. He deals with their food supply talks about hail and fire which may be like lightning and blood coming out of the heavens and i don't know that it's literal blood because in the context of where this is written they oftentimes talk about rain looking like blood because of the type of color of dust that oftentimes finds itself into the sky and so some of their storms look like blood raining down from heaven so is it literal blood is it representative of something we're not we're not told nor do I really think it's that important in the context of this passage. What we're being told is that God will bring judgment upon the earth. He will do it in specific ways. And he will strike the land and deal with the food supply. But again, we're reminded that judgment originates in heaven. It comes by way of an angel, but it comes from God's hand. It says, the first angel blew his trumpet, and these things were thrown upon the earth. Where are they originating from? In heaven. In heaven. God is responding. This is this is God-originated judgment. This isn't some natural phenomena that we have to be paranoid and frightful about. This is God working. This is God carrying out his plans. It's thrown down upon the earth from heaven. It comes from God's hand. The parallel passages in Exodus 9:22 through 25, it's when God rains hail upon the land of Egypt and it devastates their food supplies. It devastates their crops. Real real similar picture that we see with God bringing judgment upon Egypt. Again, for the same reasons, idolatry and the persecution of his people. I would say that it's hard to read this both literally and chronologically. So there's some people that would say, read this literally. This is actually going to happen exactly like it's written. The reason that that's difficult is because it says all the green grass is burned up. Not just a third of it, but all of it. And then if you skip down to chapter 9, verse 4, talking about these, these locust creatures that we'll talk about in the near future. It says, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Just a few verses later, we're told that there's still plenty of grass around to not harm. So it's hard to read this chronologically and literally when we see grass pop up again. So again, I think we're talking about cycles of judgment. We're seeing a recapitalization of it. And we're kind of going back and seeing it, so it's not meant to be chronologically, and I don't think it's meant to be taken literally, all right? Second trumpet blows, and God strikes the sea. So back in Revelation chapter 8, verse 8, it says, The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And God strikes the sea just like he does in Exodus chapter 7, verse 20 through 25, when the Nile River was struck. And that devastated their food supply even more because not only is their homegrown food destroyed, now they can't even get food from outside sources. And so God devastates the, the sea commerce by a third of the ships being put down, a third of the people on those ships being killed. And so um, God begins to, to really bring judgment in, in various ways and in various places, and he's striking at the food supplies of man. The third trumpet blows, and God strikes the fresh water. says, the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. God strikes the fresh water. He does it with a great star. And even this, it's hard to read literally, because how could one star land in all of the rivers? can't right like it'd have to be broken up into tons of pieces and maybe that's the case but again i don't think the purpose of john writing in such a way is for us to try to really press the details and really try to figure out how does this scientifically happen we're meant to be drawn to the idea that judgment is coming and we need to be prepared for it god strikes at the fresh water the the wormwood name means bitterness Can anybody think, and so we see God making water bitter here and poisonous and and deathly. Can anybody think where God does the opposite in past history, when God actually did the exact opposite of what he's doing here? So back in Exodus 15, children of Israel come out of Egypt, and they're, they're desperate, in need of water. They're thirsty. They come to a place of water, and it's bitter. It's described like wormwood. They can't drink of it. It'll kill them if they drink of it. What does God do? He purifies it. It's cool to see that God's got control and power in both directions, right? He can bring refreshment. He can bring springs of living water to his people while also doing the exact opposite and bringing judgment through the same manner. We serve a God who is sovereign over all of his creation. He can bring judgment or he can bring salvation through the same means. The fourth trumpet is blown in and God strikes at the sky parallels in Exodus chapter 10 verses 12 through 15 where um, God brings darkness upon the land, right? God brings darkness upon the land and he does it in such a way where it's dark where the Egyptians live and it's not dark where the Israelites live. Kind of a crazy phenomenon that can't be explained naturally. That's completely supernatural for God to, to orchestrate events in such a way where the Egyptians can't even see the hand in front of their face and, and, the, and the Israelites are over here in the sunshine putting on sunscreen because it's so sunny, right? Like God, God completely judges and saves at the exact same time those that are his people and those that aren't. God strikes the sky here. It says, the fourth angel blew his trumpet. A third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. God strikes at the sky. I think all four of these trumpets remind us that we should not put our ultimate hope in created things because all things, even the most secure things like the light of the sun, are passing away. Think about that. The most consistent thing, one of the most consistent things, the sun comes up and the sun goes down every single day, right? Like that doesn't change. And yet it will change one day. God will strike at the sky in such a way where it doesn't function like it normally functions. Even what will take place tomorrow, it can be explained scientifically, right? Everything will align perfectly where it'll be dark during the day. And that'll be strange and odd because that's not normal, but it's scientific, right? There's coming a day where things will stop functioning scientifically. The supernatural will intercede here and do things that, 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 that aren't natural, and he will bring judgment as he begins to respond again to the prayers of the saints, right? This is in response to our prayers. This is in response to us crying out for God to end the evil and the suffering and the sorrow. God says, okay, it's, it's time. I'm gonna bring judgment on the earth. I'm gonna bring judgment on the earth. I'm gonna put an end to all things. Don't put your hope in the created things because they're all coming to an end. They are all passing away. Number four, God is merciful in his judgment. So we've seen that he's responsive, right? He's responding. He's doing the things that the trumpets talk about him doing because of man's sin, idolatry, persecution. He's doing it in response to the prayers of his people. Just like they cried out in Egypt for help, we cry out for help and God acts and God responds. He's consistent. He's not doing anything crazy new in the book of Revelation. He's communicating the same way that he always has to people that are going to be under his judgment. Get ready because hail's coming, fire's coming, darkness is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Be ready, be prepared, repent, right? He's, He's sovereign in his judgment because he takes his created things and he uses them in destructive ways to bring about his judgment. He's sovereign over these things. But I told you, you read this and you don't immediately come away thinking, we serve a merciful God. We serve a gracious God because you're reading about hail and fire mingled with blood and you're, you're reading about the sun and the moon and the stars darkening and you're seeing things falling out of the sky and water being devastated and, and ships being devastated. You don't typically walk away from that thinking, what a good, kind God. But that ought to be what we see here because God only brings this type of judgment on one third of the creation when all of it deserves it. We see God's patience here. We see his mercy. We see his kindness as the full wrath of God does not fall yet. What a gracious God to let the judgment come in waves, giving opportunity for repentance. Revelation 9 says that people won't repent, right? It says that, even after all of this those that live through it they won't repent of their idolatry they won't repent of their sexual immorality they won't turn to god it's not god's fault god's giving opportunity for repentance right god has extended his time of judgment so that they have opportunity for repentance and they choose to ignore the warning signs and continue to delve more into their sin right we read in the seals what do they do Jesus comes back, they hide themselves. They cry out to the mountains to fall upon them. We'd rather die than repent. They're that blinded, they're that engrossed in their sin. But it's not due to to a lack of God's mercy. God's merciful in his judgment. He shows patience, mercy, and kindness. He provides intensified warnings to repent prior to his coming. Limited judgment gives opportunity for change. God is willing for man to repent despite the great evil that man produces and despite the great rebellion that man demonstrates. But in his blindness and rebellion, man would rather hide than repent. That passage we've already referenced, Revelation chapter 9. After all this destruction, mankind still chooses sin over God. It says the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues They did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Again, I don't think the purpose of the passage this morning is to cause us to speculate too much about when these things happen and how they exactly exactly happen. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. Right? It doesn't matter how these things happen. It matters that we realize that in some way, some form, some fashion, God is bringing judgment upon this earth, and we better be ready for it. And for those of us that have already responded in repentance, we can take comfort in knowing that I can pray for God to come. I can pray for God to save. I can pray for God to end the things that cause so much sorrow in our life and know that he desires to answer those prayers and know that he has the power to answer those prayers, and know that he will answer those prayers. Some application points that I want to leave you with this morning. First of all, be warned. Man without God is headed straight for judgment. He alone is on the throne, and it is futile to turn from him. I think the first thing that we have to remember this morning is that judgment is coming, and we have to be prepared for it. We need to to heed the warnings, especially for those of us that are maybe not believers this morning. As Christians, we should certainly heed the warnings because as believers, we should buy into all this, we should believe all this, and we should turn from our sin even as Christians knowing that God is gonna bring uh, discipline upon us. God is gonna bring discipline upon us as believers. He did that against his people in, in the Old Testament, right? Joel chapter two, verse 12. And here's the comfort. I read to you already Joel chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. It was like the same language as Revelation, right? Darkness, skies looking crazy, hail's coming, fire's coming. This great warning. But then you read Joel chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious And he's merciful, and he's slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and, pride, and bride her chamber. Crying out for repentance, crying out for God's forgiveness. Can you think of a book of the Bible that we went through where this happens and God responds in the same way? You know, we went through the book of Jonah, right? And, 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 and Jonah comes and says, you guys are done. Like, like God is so tired of you and he's going to bring judgment upon you and you, you're going to die. It's the worst gospel presentation of all time, Right? Like Jonah gives no hope to these people and he was told to go and to warn them and what did we say Jonah didn't want to do it for? Jonah says, I know if I go and tell them that that your judgment's coming, they're gonna repent and you're gonna forgive them and you're not gonna kill them and he hated these people so much. But finally, after spending three days in a a, a fish, Jonah goes and he says, like again, like the least words possible in the gospel conversation and basically says, you're dead, God hates you and he's gonna judge you. And everybody's kind of like, what maybe maybe he's a forgiving god though right and so they have to kind of create this gospel message themselves and they start repenting and they start uh covering themselves in sackcloth and ashes and there's this great fast that the king calls for and what does god do god relents of his anger and he doesn't judge the people it's exactly the invitation given in the book of joel hey darkness is coming the sky's gonna fall apart hail's gonna come fire you're gonna all die But hey, there's time to repent. There's time to get things right, and God will relent and not do these things. Man, what an encouragement to us this morning. What an encouragement to those of us that have loved ones in our life that aren't believers to know that the time hasn't expired yet for them, right? That God is a gracious, kind God. Yeah, he's gonna bring devastation, but only on a third of the earth at this time. Even in the midst of bringing destruction, he's still giving opportunity for repentance, That's an encouragement to us. One, to be warned that if we're not a believer, if we've been delaying in that decision to put our faith and trust in Christ, that it happens now. That God is gracious and merciful and can respond to that repentance with salvation. But also it's an encouragement to know that we can leave today and continue sharing the gospel with those around us because that time has not come yet for final devastation. God continues to delay. God continues to give opportunity for repentance. Number two, be encouraged. God is sovereign over all creation and will use its upheaval to judge in response to the pleas of his people. God is sovereign over all creation and will use its upheaval to judge in response to the pleas of his people. We don't have any reason to fear. And I wanted to pause here just for a minute because I don't know about you. If I were to talk to you about the things that you fear you may, you may reference things like um, what, what Denise and Tom went through this week that we were praying for, that, that we shared this morning. With their granddaughter not being able to breathe and not knowing how that was going to turn out, that's a, that's a fearful situation, right? Like there's all kinds of temptation to fear and to be anxious. And even as I was praying for them that night, it was, it was great that it worked out that, that our men's dinner was happening at the same time because we were able to pause at the end of our men's dinner and, and just come together as men within our church and pray for their family. But even as we continue to pray beyond that, I'm praying that God would protect them from fear and from anxiousness and from worry because, man, it's at that time where everything that's been learned and known about God needs to flush itself out. Hey, God is in control of this situation and I have no reason to fear, right? God is completely in control of that situation. To me, this is the most horrific, most tempting time to be fearful, I mean, just, just pause for a minute and think. If all of these things were happening uh, sequentially and, and just one after another, and we're just, even if we're just sitting in front of a television and there's reports about a meteor that's about to crash into the earth and the expectation is that a third of the people on earth will die from it. I mean, that takes worry about your granddaughter to a whole new level, right? Because now it's not just one granddaughter, it's everybody that you care about. Are they gonna fall in the part of the planet that is devastated by this meteor? If we start getting reports of, of, again, let's just say that this is literal. Like let's take it to the scariest part possible that hail and fire and blood are raining in parts of the earth and we're, we're watching this on TV. Let's take it even further and and in our service, it gets cloudy outside and the sun, we walk out and it's not eclipse day and all of a sudden it's dark and stars are falling out of the sky. I can't imagine a more horrific and more terrifying and more fearful situation to be in. And I was so encouraged when I came across Psalm chapter 46 this morning as I was kind of wrapping up my study. Psalm chapter 46, verse 1, it says, God is our refuge and our strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. We will not fear. He's our refuge and our strength and our help in trouble. That's the same language that's used in Revelation. Revelation right? Mountains falling into the sea and causing great devastation, the earth giving way. The psalmist here says, even if the worst thing possible is happening, even if the book of Revelation is taken literally and unfolds all at one time, literally, I don't have any reason to fear. Why? It's coming directly from God, right? This is being cast out of heaven to this earth, And it's not like we didn't ask for it, right? We prayed for this to happen, right? We cried out to God and we prayed, deliver us from evil, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And God says, this is my will. My will is to bring judgment and destruction upon those that have caused so much harm and so much sorrow for my people. And if we're not careful, we're like, man, that's not right for God to be angry. That's not right for God to be judgmental. And that's where we have to pause and say, Man, he could have done that to everybody, and he doesn't do that to everybody, right? He spares people and continues to give opportunities for repentance. We serve a great God, a kind God, a gracious God, a God who has all power, a God who will bring judgment at the right time, at the appropriate time, in response to sin, but also in response to our prayers. He will bring salvation at the appropriate time. We don't have anything to fear. If we don't have to fear the worst case scenarios, we certainly don't have, we'll have to fear the, the minor ones that, that, that pale in comparison to the worst things we can imagine. There's certainly a temptation to fear. There's certainly a temptation to be anxious. But man, let's remember the encouragement that we do not fear when a God that we serve loves us and remains in control of everything. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to this passage and we see these trumpets being blown and, and God, I know that our fleshly tendency would be to react in fear to be scared of such things. But God, I pray that we would be reminded of how how we have zero reason to fear because of your goodness, because of your grace, because we're in a relationship with you, and that all of these things that will happen in the future happen under your control. They happen as part of your designed purpose. They happen in response to our prayers to bring deliverance to your people. God, we're thankful that as Christians will die today around this earth for their faith in you, that there's coming a day where that will stop, that you will put an end to that persecution. God, we're thankful that even in our immediate context, where evil will take place in this county today, people that will be arrested and locked up today, that there's coming a day where that type of evil will stop. God, I pray that we would be reminded that that day is not here yet and there is still much to be done as we seek to draw people to you. God, remind us of the goodness of the gospel. Remind us of the fact that you desire to save and that you desire to use us as instruments of salvation as we carry that good news to others. God, help us to realize these days are coming when judgment will fall upon the earth. But God, help us to remember as Joel reminds us that there's still opportunity to repent now. God, I pray for anyone in here that may not be a believer this morning that is still under the coming judgment. God, that you would help them to realize that Christ has come to save them from that judgment, that you demand perfection, that you demand holiness, and that we've all fallen short of that. And that it's only by the grace of Jesus Christ who came to be perfect for us who died on the cross at our place to save us from that condemnation. It's only through Jesus that we can be saved. God, I pray for anyone that does not know you yet as their Savior, that has not confessed you as Lord, that has not put their faith and trust in the future into you. God, that you would cause them to seek out someone today that can help answer questions and can help can help lead them in that direction. God, we're thankful that you've, you've promised that Those that will believe, those that will cry out, they will be saved. We praise you and thank you that you're a kind and gracious God that will spare us from our sin. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.